This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate Retro Rewatch Edition. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find Open the Voice Gate on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast feed or on its own Open the Voice Gate feed on the podcast platform of your choice. We're on Twitter at Open Voice Gate, and I am one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears, and I'm being joined by Case Lowe. Case, we are talking today about the first ever show in DGUSA history, Open Historical Gate. And boy, 11 years ago, that's a very distinctly different time than the world we are in today. 2009, I am 10 years old. I am living in the middle of Indiana. I am in, what, fifth or sixth grade at that point. Things are not going super well. Uh, it is a tough <laughs> existence. Uh, I'm navigating my way through it the best I can. 2009 is a time where I had virtually zero professional wrestling in my life. Uh, for anyone that has known me for a long period of time, uh, they know how much I love 2006 SmackDown into 2007 SmackDown and ECW. But by the end of the year, I had lost interest in the hobby of watching professional wrestling, and it was something that I would not pick back up until uh, 2012, I believe. So 2009, I am not watching any sort of mainstream wrestling. I have no uh, knowledge of the world of independence. I have no knowledge of the world of Drangate nor Drangate USA, but it is something that I have grown to love and appreciate for what it was. And we are now sitting here in the year 2020 and it should be noted that the gap between the last Dragon Gate USA show and now has lasted longer than the entire run of Dragon Gate USA combined 2009 to 2014. This promotion existed in some form or fashion in the American independent <laughs> wrestling landscape. 2004, 14 to now 2020 it rests in peace and mike and i are here the uh, the foremost experts in english content for the dragon system uh this is something we've talked about doing for a little bit now or at least i've had the idea and i've mentioned it to mike in passing and now that the world seems to be at a bit of a standstill with COVID 19 and everything that's going on there uh, Mike and I have found some extra time in our days, and instead of writing that great screenplay or writing our novels or doing whatever it is that could be more productive than that, we have decided to rewatch Dragon Gate USA. Uh, hopefully, 
we can get through every show not in this COVID-19 crisis, but just in general in uh, our podcasting lifespan. But we figured what better time to start this than now. And we start with the beginning, open the historic gate, July 25th, 2009 from the ECW arena. But before we get into that show, we need to know how we got here. Yeah, so you gave a little bit of uh, framing of where you were. I followed this promotion from the drop. I was in grad school, or the summer between uh, undergrad and grad school. I just recently moved to Magic City, 305 Miami. And this was a really interesting time in just the overall wrestling landscape because this came at a very formulative time and kind of was a precursor to the... uh, Indies boom that coincidentally started pretty much when Dragon Gate USA died. So, 2000. Funny how that works. Funny how that works. But there's one thing we have to talk about first, going back actually into 2008 case before we start talking about landscape, and that is the first the first things that led us to this moment. And talk about a. I don't think he's one of. I don't think I'm one of his fans, or he's one of my fans. But we need to talk about this guy, Gabe Sapolsky case. So. This started really in 2008 when he was the when he was the booker for Ring of Honor. He was with Ring of Honor from its inception to late 2008. In case, what do you really what do you think we should say about like his departure from from Ring of Honor and how Dragon Gate played onto this? Because this is kind of like the key event that started this promotion. Well, let's go back a little bit further, even. Let's briefly, because it matters to all of this, because the formation of Dragon Gate USA is a series of chain events that stretch back to 10 years before the promotion really started. When we look at World Championship Wrestling, WCW, and because of Ultimo's, Ultimo Dragon's presence, we saw his trainees, the first class of the Toriumon generation, including Dragon Kid and Magnum Tokyo, and Shima, or at the time, Shima Nobunaga, wrestling on WCW-branded events, most notably Dragon Kid as Little Dragon defeating Eddie Guerrero by DQ. Uh, by 1999... Toriyuman is out of WCW. We see uh, this kind of coincide with Ultimo's health issues because he's not an active presence. His trainees are no longer there. It should be noted in the early months of 2001, so this is right before WCW closed down, but when the idea that Fusion Media was going to purchase the promotion, part of the new direction that Eric Bischoff wanted to take with the company was an increase in focus on the cruiserweights in bringing in now-established Toriyuman stars like Shima and Dragon Kid and Magnum Tokyo and having them be the kingpins of the cruiserweight division. Now, this is a tale as old as time in American wrestling of whether it's the WCW cruiserweights, the WWE cruiserweights, or the TNA X division. It seems like whenever there's a rebrand, the focus seems to be on putting young flippy light heavyweight wrestlers in the spotlight and more often than not using Japanese or Mexican wrestlers uh, to boost their abilities. But as we've seen as time has gone on, that has never really happened successfully. So instead of seeing the Toriumon invasion into WCW in 2001, it is not until 2005 that we see the dragon system step foot in America again 
Uh, at this time, they are known as Dragon Gate. They have separated from uh, Ultimo Dragon and the Toriumon Gym. And we see the Dragon Gate invasion in Ring of Honor in October of 2005. We see Shima versus AJ Styles in a dream match. And Shima's prized pupil, Shingo Takagi, wrestle Curry Man on the undercard. From there, we go to April of 2006, the first Ring of Honor running on WrestleMania weekend, the first Supercard of Honor, and on a weekend that included a bloody brawl between Cole Cabana and Homicide, a technical classic between Brian Danielson and Lance Storm, and a nearly hour-long battle between Roderick Strong and Brian Danielson for the Ring of Honor World Heavyweight Championship. The match that got everybody talking that weekend was the Blood Generation versus Do Fixer six-man tag match, 331-06, a five-star match, according to Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. It was said that as soon as these men entered backstage, Gabe Sapolsky noted that these men were five years ahead of their time. And this starts, one, an increased presence of Drangate in the United States. We start seeing them work in PWG. We start seeing more Ring of Honor dates. Shingo Takagi goes on excursion into Ring of Honor. We see Yamato and BB Hulk infiltrate full impact impact pro in florida which is a ring of honor subsidiary and it seems like in the the american landscape uh yes there's pro wrestling noah stars like kenta and Naimichi marifuji and takeshi morishima that have a presence in ring of honor takeshi morishima becomes a ring of honor world heavyweight champion at one point but the favored brand at this point seems to be treading in the Dragon Gate direction among American fans that watch Japanese wrestling. And from there, Gabe is full steam ahead on using Dragon Gate talent when he can. They come back to Detroit for WrestleMania weekend the next year. And then once again in Orlando, Florida in 2008. And in 2007 and 2008, we see Sapolsky trying to emulate the booking patterns of Dragon Gate by doing what he called faction warfare, which was uh, the Hangman 3 and the Vulture Squad and the No Remorse Corps and the Resilience. And these are names that if, quite honestly, if you're a Ring of Honor fan of this generation, those names probably, probably mean nothing to you, nor should they, because faction warfare was a miserable failure Nobody really got over for it with the exception of maybe the No Remorse Corps, Davey Richards, Roderick Strong, and Rocky Romero. And that was one of the big first blemishes on the booking record of Gabe Sapolsky at this point, because Ring of Honor was not only known for great matches in high-level wrestling that you just weren't seeing on any sort of American platform at the time, but for nearly picture-perfect booking, that Sapolsky from 2002 to 2006, coinciding with Homicide's win of the Ring of Honor World Heavyweight Championship from Brian Danielson, was winning Booker of the Year uh, easily among any sort of professional wrestling discourse, people with a clue. Now, we're not talking about the UFC and Pride and any sort of MMA influence, but if you want to talk about professional wrestling, that four-year time period, there is not a better Booker and wrestling, but something goes a little bit wrong in 2007 with Faction Warfare, and by 2008, whether he wants to admit it or not, Sapolsky appears to be burnt out. He's dealing 
with a new generation of stars, your Tyler Blacks and your Nigel McGinnises, uh, your Chris Heroes and your Austin Aries, your Kevin Steens and your El Genericos, and the CM Punks and the Brian Danielsons of the world, and even steady hands like Jack Evans are going elsewhere and are given new opportunities by other companies. Gabe is forced to rebuild, and he perhaps doesn't do it as strongly as he would have liked. And in October of 2008, he is fired from the company. And that is where we begin the footprints of Dragon Gate USA existing. Yeah, and something worth noting was there were several events that moved, that went up to his firing in October of 2008. The uh, first things that was that they started doing pay-per-view. And it was kind of a move that did not seem to be something that Gabe Sapolsky was all about. seemed to be other people in Ring of Honor. We're really avid about it, but it seems like one of the big catalyzing moments was this 2008 tour of Ring of Honor in Japan. They did two shows, and the shows were cross-moded with their promotional partners of Dragon Gate and Pro Wrestling Noah. The, uh, The story, as was reported by Dave Meltzer, was that in 2008, it was thought that Ring of Honor, more specifically Carrie Silken, thought that Dragon Gate did not hold up their end of the deal and promoting Japan. Coincidentally, this these shows happened at Differ Ariake, which is Pro Wrestling Noah's home field. So there's a lot of kind of of just general things there. And it seemed like that at least the opinion at the time was that Kerry wanted to move away from using Dragon Gate. He was so poisoned by the experience that he just wanted to kick that he wanted to leave it in the past, just move on, move on without them. But Gabe Sapolsky wanted to keep this going, and eventually they would be fired. He would get fired, and then for the next few months he was kind of quiet. And then the first kind of news about this kind of picking up was from the old legacy website of MySpace, where we are now talk- taking this to April two thousand nine, where Shima, who had a pretty active MySpace presence, had a post where. <laughs> After WrestleMania weekend, where Ring, Ring of Honor and Dragon Gate were not a part of it, it was the first year that Dragon Gate was not at the uh, WrestleMania shows for Ring of Honor, where he says, and I'm just going to kind of paraphrase this, he was receiving inquiries like, why aren't Dragon Gate wrestlers on the Mania shows? What's the relationship? And he said, well, I can't really say because our lawyer is working on this case in America, but I can tell you that Dragon Gate no longer has any relationship with Ring of Honor. And then there was a bunch of pay things dating back to the 2008 shows in Japan. Ring of Honor claimed that he was false about this. And that led to, less than two days later, the announcement of Dragon Gate USA. They announced on April 15, 2009, that they are opening a U.S. office and will be running six or more shows a year using former Ring of Honor booker Gabe Sapolsky as the booker. The concept is to bring in eight wrestlers from Japan on each show, focus on three or four markets, and then fill out the rest of the shows with independent wrestlers. Other people to be known that were part of this were Satoshi Oji, who was kind of the person who was leading at the time. There was a Dragon Gate USA office based in Texas, and he was going to be the organizational president. This was also, he was kind of the guy that took care of Shingo during his excursion. And current Dragon Gate president, by that time, the number two guy in Japan, Toru Kido, would be the CFO. The first show was announced to be on July 25th at the New Alhambra, former ECW, currently the 2300 Arena in Philadelphia, 
with Dragon Kid, Shima, Masato Yoshino, and Naruki Doi as four of the eight wrestlers appearing. Six to seven match shows with the Japanese headliners. The second show was already announced to be in Labor Day weekend over Chicago. They're hoping to draw 400 to 600 fans to the to each show, thinking that Dragon Gate itself has become well enough known to the U.S. to draw that level of a niche talent. And this is there'll be similar people, talent brought in so they can do programs, but they'll still vary of the top 16 or so Dragon Gate wrestlers. Very similar to Ring of Honor at the beginning, where DVDs was going to be the primary stream of revenue because, as Gabe knew, that the Dragon Gate DVDs came were like one of the strongest selling DVDs for Ring of Honor. And then very soon after this, they announced a pay-per-view deal with a company called G-Funk Entertainment case. And yes, G-Funk. Yeah, and the, this is the company that when Ring of Honor went to pay-per-view initially, this is pre-i-pay-per-view era, they would tape these shows and then have them in the can for about two months, and then they would edit it down and make a pay-per-view product that was sold for like $19, $20, and they would do six shows a year. Coincidentally, this is actually pure coincidence at this time, the deal with Ring of Honor, which started in 2007, lapsed before 2009, and then Dragon Gate USA started a deal with G-Funk Entertainment. And then over the next few months, they would announce the card for these shows. Uh, it should be noted that attendance, they were shooting for five to 600. They ended up having approximately, I've seen numbers of like 750 paid or 775 paid, and then 800 people there at the ECW arena. And they were hoping to do 5,000 buys on a pay-per-view, but I've not been able to find the pay-per-view figure. So those are like the big events on the show. But Case, I know you kind of wanted to touch on what the overall landscape was in 2009 in American indie wrestling. Yes, the landscape at the time was much different than what we're used to now. I think partially because your primary destination at this point is still Ring of Honor. And Ring of Honor, Adam Pierce is booking at the time. And if you look at their main events from late 2008 into the summer of 2009, your main eventers are Chris Hero and Austin Aries. It's Tyler Black and Jimmy Jacobs. We're in the thick of the age of the fall fallout. And then you've got Davey Richards and Roderick Strong slowly creeping their way to the top of the card. There's guys like El Generico and Kevin Steen who are Drangate alumni who are also becoming more and more featured on these shows and are having a bigger impact on the overall landscape of the company, as well as guys like Necro Butcher and Eric Stevens who are bringing something entirely new to the promotion, a brawling heavy style that had really not been seen even by the likes of Homicide and Loki. Uh, so there are a ton of changing parts and changing faces in Ring of Honor at this point. And if you look at your other destinations, if you're an independent wrestler trying to get to uh, either TNA or WWE, which are still the primary two sources of income if you're an American wrestler, PWG seems to be the best place to land outside of Ring of Honor. There you're going to see uh, the same names I just mentioned, plus the Young Bucks, plus guys like Human Tornado and Joey Ryan. They were big factors there. Colt Cabana had just been released by WWE at this point and was returning to the independent landscape and was about to start his Art of Wrestling podcast, which is still going today. And then there's Chikara. And Chikara has a heavy presence on the first year of Dragon Gate USA shows. And in a way, it makes sense because 
whether there was an official partnership or not, there's some sort of unity between Ring of Honor and Pro Wrestling Guerrilla and companies like IWA Mid-South and CZW and AAW in Chicago. It, whether there's a partnership or not, there's some form of unity that the guys that are booked on Ring of Honor shows are likely getting booked on CZW shows or on PWG shows. And if you make a good impression on a CZW show, you might get onto a Ring of Honor show or a PWG show. There's a natural chain of progression among the independents unless you're a graduate of the Chikara Wrestle Factory, which in that case, you might escape like a Chris Hero or a Claudio Castagnoli and you're able to develop your skills there and then hone them in other companies. Or you might be like a Jigsaw or a Hollow Wicked that seem pigeonholed to Chikara and to uh, perhaps loyalty to a fault of Mike Quackenbush. And it resembles very much the way that Drangate operates in Japan, where even when tensions are running high, pro wrestling Noah, All Japan Pro Wrestling, New Japan Pro Wrestling, uh, the way the media covers them, the way they interact with one another, there is a sense of uniformity there. And then there is Dragon Gate. And it exists in its own universe. The media doesn't like to cover them the same way that they covered the big three promotions. Their talent largely exists on an island, and it makes sense in their own universe. But there is a great barrier of understanding and consuming that content that resembles that of Chikara. And we see a lot of Chikara in this first year of Dragon Gate USA, and in a weird way, it makes total sense. Yeah, and at this time, probably... I was somewhat on the out of Ring of Honor other than when Dragon Gate guys were there. I was introduced to Dragon Gate naturally through the uh, six-man tag. But Chikara was a company at that time that there were... Like, you could line it up, and there were like a lot of similarities. It did have a lot more of a lucha bent and like this, but you did have like the idea of warring factions. You had what someone who was brought up on this very show... Jorge Skyda Rivera kind of as like the uh, link between the two and really with Chikara at this time they, they would have basically whenever they would go on some sort of a tour another promotion and at this time they kind of backed away from it but they would basically have the touring Chikara match where it would be Mike Quackenbush and three faces versus four Rudos and they would basically just have an all-out Chikara match for 15 minutes and it made a lot of sense for these two to kind of team up there. In the past, Chikara was pretty much open to have anyone international come up. Like, uh, Milano Collection AT was there for a while. Uh, Molonito was there. They've had people from DDT before this. They had a, a really a kind of weird uh, Perfect Strangers couple with them in Big Japan. But it was interesting because this was very much a Chikara on the rise that was partnering with Dragon Gate USA, which was very important for Gabe Sapolsky at this time because he was detached from the Ring of Honor infrastructure, which by this time, Ring of Honor was the legitimate number three in the country by a good margin. They It wasn't necessarily that they were on TV. They would later get onto HDNet in 2009, but they had a school. They had basically a touring apparatus. They had the, pay, they had the pay-per-view set up. They had the DVD cells. Of course, Ring of Honor came out of our video needing to have something to sell tapes after the closure of ECW. So over like the first year, it wasn't just Chikara, like AEW was linked to them. Some other promotions were, but there very much was a familiarity between the two and it made them kind of natural partners. It should be noted that when I first began actively uh, consuming and pursuing viewing independent wrestling, 
it was late 2012 into early 2013. Ring of Honor at this point is owned by Sinclair. Top stars Kevin Steen and Davey Richards, among others, were kind of at the tail end of the Jim Cornette era. And Ring of Honor exists uh, much like they do now on an island as a number three, but there's such a large gap between the number two and the number three that even at this time, there are arguments of, well, is Ring of Honor really an indie? You know, what are they? Where do they exist in this landscape? The indie that people pointed uh, to me as this is the promotion to watch, this is the promotion that matters, was not PWG or AAW or what was left of, you know, CZW. It was Chikara. That was the end-all, be-all at that point. And I caught about six months of really good Chikara action, and then Mike Quackenbush said, let's take a hiatus, and they have (laughs) never been the same since. Yeah, yeah. And this kind of was, in a lot of ways, if you want to – after we're done with this entire series, however long it takes, he probably was the first immediate beneficiary of the Dragon Gate relationship because he was not only able to partner with him and get his guys on the show, but then he would have shows with it was like Dragon Gate versus Chikara. And he would have uh, Akira Tozawa during his excursion. Chikara was one of his mainstay stops. So he definitely was able to use this to take this company that from this point in 2019 to where it stopped down, like, it was constantly on the rise, constantly on the rise, constantly on the rise before he decided to take that time off. So he definitely was someone that benefited from this initial relationship. Absolutely. And before we start talking about the show, I want to take a quick break for our sponsor. If you were to guess, on average, how many days people in the U.S. have to wait to see a doctor, what would you say? Americans have to wait around 29 days to see a doctor in major United States cities. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer and complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a United States licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get unlimited follow-ups if your doctor at any time you have any questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel any time. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com backslash VOW for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com backslash VOW for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. And I'm going over, I have a huge thing of notes for this thing, just so the listeners know. No, I have, I think it's 48 pages of Dragon Gate USA notes that I have saved. But this show, so it was taped on on July 25th. I believe it made air on, I'm trying to pull up the exact date there. If, if you know what the exact date was. Oh, September 4th? Yes. It had... Lenny Leonard announcing who came over after Gabe Sapolsky had left Ring of Honor and he kept the relationship with uh, Lenny Leonard to this day. And this is also how Lenny Leonard got linked up with Dragon Gate. So you can kind of see a start there. Uh, there were more matches that were on the show that were on the DVD release that aren't on cuts that are available now. Probably worth now noting that as of today, all these shows are up on Club WWN, Gabe Sapolsky's, service for 
evolve and the various shows there and i think you get a free month of your first month free so yes so there is no better time to dive in if you are looking for content to consume during uh we are recording this as we said previously during the COVID 19 crisis in the globe uh why not kick back with a club WWN subscription and enjoy some Dragon Gate USA while the world rapidly changes around us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And talking about like how the world rapidly has changed, this is a show now that is now will be 11 years old this uh, July. And just overall, your overall thoughts on this show, I feel like it'd be a good way to kind of start talking about this. I have watched this show probably 10 times start to finish because when I was getting into independent wrestling and when I discovered Dragon Gate USA, which quickly led me to Dragon Gate proper, which quickly, you know, completely changed the way I thought about professional wrestling. Uh, there was one Christmas where basically everything I wanted was Dragon Gate USA DVDs. And I got, you know, the first four shows that came in these great deluxe, like two DVD sets with a gatefold in the middle. It was just, you know, beautiful packaging. And I quickly caught up on the shows that I had missed and open the historic gate in particular seems to just have a legacy that lives on and on and on. I talk with people on a pretty regular basis, wrestling fans that, really don't keep up with Drangate proper at all anymore. But the thing that it always circles back to is how great this first Drangate USA show was and how big of a deal that it felt to the people that were actively watching at the time. And maybe you can speak to that a little bit. But for the show as a whole, it is just a a very pleasurable viewing experience. There are things on the show that hold up. There are things on the show that maybe don't to some extent, but for two hours and 20 minutes, I was able to sit down and watch the show. I was reminded of things that I had loved in the past. My opinions on certain matches had changed greatly from how I remember them. There were also things on this show that I had no memory of and we will discuss those when we come to it but this is a show that i have seen multiple times i know the card by heart and yet as i was watching it two nights ago i was like oh my god i when did this happen is this edited out of the dvd no it doesn't make sense i'm watching the dvd how is this show existing as it is how are there things that i don't remember on this show but as a whole it is not my favorite dragon gate usa show but i understand if this is some people's, if they came out of the came out of the gate swinging so hard with this first show that it was never able to be topped in the minds of some viewers. Yeah, and I remember distinctly getting this DVD in the mail. I originally wanted to go to this uh, show. I bought tickets. I ended up selling one of them, and I kept one of the tickets. And sadly, through all my moves, I don't still have the actual ticket on. Like they, the big thing that like Gabe did at this time was he tried to make this seem like that this was like a quality show, like the idea of you're getting a premium show, a premium uh, a premium wrestling experience. So like instead of like nowadays where it's like the PayPal or PayHip or wherever you buy your tickets, he sent out like these physical like foil embossed tickets, which were wild. Uh, people who went to the arena, he said that he gave people for the first few rows a special gift and it ended up being thunder sticks, which is <laughs> no better sign of 2009 than giving people out thunder sticks. 
So I'm all for it. I wish it was a thing that was uh, continued as the promotion went on because <laughs> there is a really unique atmosphere to the show. And part of that is through the DVD production, which is stuff that we'll, we'll talk about when we hit it. But presentationally, this show feels much different than any Ring of Honor show in the Sapolsky era or especially any independent show on the landscape at the time. This show feels like a really big deal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this was at a time where the ECW arena started doing a lot of upgrades to their to their production. So there were video walls, there were video screens, there was constant fog. And the, the show itself and presentation-wise not too dissimilar to how shows are now put on. Like, if anything, I would say that Evolve took a step back, but promotions like AAW and other, like, the Russ... Actually, the perfect comp here. If you compare this to 2019's WrestleCon Super Show production-wise, not too far apart. You wouldn't think that one of them was a decade before it. He got 3D graphics made at a time where 3D graphics weren't necessarily a thing. He had translation. He had subtitles on for whenever the Dragon Gate wrestlers were cutting an interview. So there just was a lot of stuff here that at the time was very forward-thinking, especially if I would buy DVDs at this time, and you would get the Chikara DVD where it would just be like a title card of what match is going to happen, and then you cut to the gym that has it, and maybe there might be a, a quick promo of someone backstage area where they just point the camera at them and, and just say, go. But this one, that actually was a concerted effort of having a step up in production style, which I think is somewhat from uh, Dragon Gate's investment into the product. And some of it was Gabe Sapolsky really wanting to do something new with this promotion. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, from there, are you ready to get into the card? Yeah, let's get into it. So one thing that I remember watching at the time, but I watched this on w Club WN, so I wasn't able to watch this, was they had a pre-show match of let's see where if I can pull up the exact results of that match, but I've got it right here if you want it. Yeah, I, I have it here. It, he had something called Gaping Gabe. He created a match called the Fray, which was basically like a timed entrance uh, gauntlet match, which was 23 minutes long, involving Andy Harner, Andy Harner, Aaron Abo, Johnny Gargano, Lewis London, Cheech, Cloudy, Lindsay Dorado, and Chris Jones. Dorado pinned Gargano to win the match in 23 minutes and 33 seconds. I remember this match just kind of being your indie showcase, super sloppy, but good at points uh, opener. Yeah, certainly a match where people that had big spots wanted to get those spots in. And that was why this match existed. You look at the names on this show. I don't have any knowledge, and I, I did not watch this match back just because, you know, there's only so many hours in the day, right. and I don't really want to spend my day watching a dark match eight-man fray. Uh, I have no recollection of Aaron Arbo, Andy Harner, uh, or Chris Jones. Uh, meanwhile, Lindsay Dorado, Cheech, Cloudy, Lewis Linden, and obviously Johnny Gargano have gone on to do big things in the world of professional wrestling. Lewis Linden was a guy that a few years ago felt like he was really going to break out. Yeah. Uh, and, and that for multiple reasons, uh, partially by way of Matt Riddle, another Gabe Sapolsky project uh, did not happen. Uh, Lindsay Dorado's now in the WWE. Cheech and Cloudy are maybe wrestling on AEW. Did I read that recently? I don't totally know what they're doing. Uh, and Johnny Gargano is uh, more melodramatic than ever before. <laughs> so 
Andy Harner and Aaron Arbo are Northeast Philadelphia guys. They were CZW kids. Andy Harner is probably more known by like, I think he was like the first Absolute Andy. I think one of them was called Absolute. Uh, Chris Jones, don't remember that schmuck, whatever. Uh, Cloudy, I think, has retired. Cheech still wrestles. He is a part of a tag team with Colin Delaney, mostly an AIW called To Infinity and Beyond. Yes. So, so yeah, no, this was just like, that this would become a Gabe trait on all these matches. He had to have his fray matches to a point that they were always just kind of this mess of a match and people would make fun of it. And Gabe kind of lent, lent, leaned in a little bit to the joke, I would say, by the end of, uh, by the end of Dragon Gate USA. But yeah, this was he was saying he was going to debut this new revolutionary match style and he just ended up being a mess. Yeah, I'm not sure if he leaned in or if he checked out, uh, but they certainly existed and that is what can be said about most of these fray matches. I know there's a, there's one or two that come to mind that I remember being really good, but we're not going to touch on those for a very <laughs> long time. Right. Right. And I do believe this was like the first exposure of Gabe Sapolsky to Johnny Gargano. That's probably like the most notable thing from this match. Like that was a big thing that Gargano went from being in the pre-show of the first Dragon Gate USA show to being undoubtedly the ace of this era of Gabe Sapolsky's promotions. Yeah, Gargano never worked Ring of Honor. It uh, was something that there's a kayfabe commentaries interview that is unfortunately not on the High Spots network because um, I'd really like to rewatch it at some point. But Gabe Sapolsky and Johnny Gargano sit down and, and dis- discuss Gargano's career in the realm of Gabe Sapolsky promotions, which would be Drangate USA and Evolve. And Gargano notes that he never worked Ring of Honor. Uh, his first dark match, his first exposure to Gabe was in Drangate USA. And then from there, he became the American figurehead of the promotion after starting off in the dark match, which, you know, whatever you think of this promotion, whatever you think of Gargano now, I love that story. I think that's a very cool story that Gargano was able to climb from the very bottom to the top of the promotion. Yeah, and that's something we will be revisiting constantly as we do this retro review thing. And yeah, I think he found Gargano through... It probably was not through uh, Quackenbush. You would think it would be Quackenbush because he had a long time as tag team champion with Chuck Taylor there. It might just be that he got the tape. I know that a DVDVR favorite show Pro Wrestling Ohio existed at the time and he was on that so interesting point there but from there we got into the actual opener which was BB Hulk versus Yamato a match that now I think we probably have seen an incredible amount of times I would say between 2009-2020 and this match is like really out of all the matches on the show this was like the biggest departure for me from Wrestling in Dragon Gate today versus where the company and where wrestling was in 2009. I was completely taken aback by the entire presentation of BB Hulk in this match. Right, right. We should get into this before we get into the match itself. So whether it's Shingo or Naruki Doi or Masato Yoshino or Dragon Kid, whatever other Japanese talent is on this show, even if they've aged or if they've changed gear or if they've changed companies— they are still roughly who they are now that they were in 2009. There really hasn't been a ton of evolution in ring, persona-wise, whatever it may be, from this show to now. With the exception of B.B. Hulk, who he comes out with an Americanized version of his entrance, because at the time, B.B. Hulk was 
uh, this pretty boy with a bit of a hip-hop dance background. He was coming out to the ring in Japan with an army of female dancers who were doing his dance moves behind him. Here we get Daisy Hayes and an unnamed woman. I think I know who that is, the second okay. one. Go, go ahead. I'm going to take a guess here, and I might be wrong. I think that is a Dempsey sister. I think that's Bobby Dempsey's sister. I remember oh, hearing God, I, that. I hope it is. <laughs> yeah, I hope that is. But yeah, no, this was this was in the heart of the BB story where he still was the Magnum Tokyo heir at this time. Yes. So Mike will go into it. We almost have a <laughs> catastrophe before the bell even sounds. But before that, it really struck me that you know, more so than any other wrestler in the Dragon system, because you still have guys like Mochizuki and Yokosuka and Yoshino who are up there in age now and have gotten older, and we've seen them get older in terms of look and the way they wrestle. Even Yamato, to an extent, his opponent in this match, Yamato is uh, a very young man in this 2009 match. He is a grown-ass main eventer in the year 2020. B.B. Hulk, when his youth went, it went, and he aged so rapidly and so intensely that I think the image of young Magnum Tokyo prototype, fun-loving women dancers, B.B. Hulk, is now lost in history because we've been existing for quite a long time with B.B. Hulk as he is now, which is a veteran of the roster that no longer does the dancing. So kind of what is he? We don't know. He's got a bit of a gut. He recently turned heel in Dragon Gate, and that gave him some sort of direction, but not really a defined persona the way that dancing BB Hulk was. And it just, it really jumped out to me here that when BB Hulk aged, he aged quickly and just harder than anybody else. Right. And, it's talking about this. This was just to give a f frame of context for Dragon Gate fans. This was 2009. Uh, World One was the Superface stable. This that was the original incarnation. So, uh, Doyoshi, BB Hulk, uh, Naoki Tanizaki, KZ, Pack were all members of this. The heel stable was Real Hazard at this time. I don't think no, no, it was Real Hazard because Deep Drunkers didn't start. Yet uh, there was the tweener stable, Kamikaze, which weirdly had Dragon Kid in it. Like, Dragon Kid somehow ended up in these stables for some bizarre reason. But that was Shingo Takagi's unit, which Yamato was a part of. And then Warriors 5, which is just a very awkward stable that, you, you know, we've talked a little bit about Warriors 5. This became kind of the start of Blood Warriors started at Warriors 5. Uh, Shima and Susumu were part of it there. This was coincidentally during Naoki Tanizaki's first Dreamgate reign, but yeah, Bravegate run. Oh, Dr Dreamgate, Dreamgate, Bravegate, Bravegate. Yes, Naruki you were saying Dreamgate. I was saying Bravegate. It's Naoki Tanizaki's Bravegate run, yeah, right? Yes. Yeah, I, I thought I said Naruki Doi. It was Naruki Doi was Dreamgate champion. He still had the yes. V one championship at this time, the old brass one. But BB Hulk at this time was still in his twenties. Uh, never turned heel. This was before he turned heel, but he had the persona of Black Hulk, which was a big deal because this was kind of him tapping into his dark side before he fully embraced it in Blood Warrior. So still very much like just like a his nickname at the time was Pure or Snow, and that very much was kind of how he was portrayed this time. 
Yamato is an interesting person to talk about because Yamato has probably had more stages to his career than any other Trueborn because this was kind of his second stage where he joined the company in 2006. He was Yazushi Kanda's second generation wrestler. They call him the New Age Geku Dujo because he was supposed to be like a punk trying to take power from underneath. And then he would join New Hazard. He would do the very short excursion or half excursion and come back and he would have this really cool look. Like his look at this time is very much like the Yamato I still think about where he had long wavy hair. He always had eye black on necklace. He wore tights, but he would have these flags on his tights, which were always a thing. And he just very much was kind of like this scumball is a good way to kind of describe. I think that's fair. Uh, yeah. 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 He's just kind of like a, a sc- like a scumball. And then, yeah, this match itself, we had, Don Marie doing ring announcing, which was something I completely forgot, and she's a terrible ring announcer. She's it's actually it's endearing she's, how bad <laughs> she's weirdly bad at it. Yeah, to a point that like I don't know how all of this came to fruition, and she was still as bad as she was because Don Marie is a very charismatic manager, was very entertaining at ECW, and just loses all of that in the ring introductions. She had like a weird cadence too. Yeah, it was so strange. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Because it was just unsettling the entire show. Yeah, unsettling the entire show. Uh, You mentioned Daisy Hayes earlier. She almost gets killed because she does not get out of the way for when BB Hulk's stance would always end with him doing a backflip off the top rope. She just stood right next to the back, to the that corner while she while he was doing it and had to like duck out of the way before she got clocked in the head by a 200-pound man doing a backflip. So Could have ended very poorly. Very poorly. But like, let's go to this match itself. This match felt like a king of gate match like a lot of the singles matches on these shows felt like something reminiscent of like the king of gate tournament yamato would win this match with the galleria at a time where like the galleria was like a death move in dragon gate yeah it's a match that i've gone through a couple different stages of yamato was a big barrier for me when i first began watching dragon gate because he's a little more I guess in line with one of the big three uh, promotions in Japan, All Japan, New Japan, Noah. Obviously, right. those popularities uh, vary in difference now, but those are still considered to be the big three. And Yamato was less flashy than pretty much anyone else on the roster. So when I was first getting in to this promotion, I just struggled with him and his existence. And this being, you know, uh, the first time I consumed this show was so early on in my Dragon Gate viewing that I really struggled to enjoy this match. I didn't like what it was. And it's also a 15 minute opener, uh, which is far from the longest match on this show, but still 15 minutes for an opener is a long time with a bunch of big moves and a bunch of kickouts. As I watched it this time, I completely loved the match. I loved what they were going for. Uh, now I look at it as Yamato's more MMA influence and his grappy, grapple-heavy style is actually welcomed in my mind, just given the way that the uh, that the landscape of the company has changed. Watching Yamato grapple with BB Hulk here was delightfully different. Like I said, it's a very long opener. Uh, Yamato brings a lot to the table. BB Hulk bumps like a madman. Uh, just to go back to the aging thing with BB Hulk, I just forgot why. I was like, my God, this guy used to throw himself around the ring. And uh, it's a style that I Hulk more so than anybody else seems to be the one that was actually in danger 
working the Dragon Gate style because it's something that people that parachute in the promotion talk about all the time of, you know, well, there's so many dives and so many big moves, you know, it's such a dangerous style, which for the most part is complete nonsense because Dragon Gate is built off of repetition and patterns and combinations that are more or less the same every single time. When they're doing dives nine times out of ten, they're diving into an entire pile of people rather than just one person. It's much safer than, say, the way WWE does it. Uh, but BB Hulk has run into a ton of injuries, mainly starting with Final Gate 2014. He wrestles Shingo Takagi and gets pretty badly hurt in that match. And that is where we see him age. And he's kind of never been the same since. But I watch him here and he's just throwing his body around the ring and selling for Yamato in these exciting and engaging ways. And then in the end, Yamato hits the Galleria for the win. It is very clear to me 15 minutes in that while Shima and Shingo and to an extent Yoshino and Doi might be bigger stars in America than Hulk and Yamato are, it is clear that the focus of the promotion going forward is going to be on these two guys. Yeah, and it's very important that you say this because at this time, Yamato is a three-year vet. Uh, Hulk, four coming close to five years vet. These guys are still so young in their career. And that's such a noticeable thing because, yeah, when I first got into Dragon Gate, when I first, like, started watching the shows, like, it's famous that Akira Tozawa is my guy, like, my ride or die. Hulk was the person who drew me in first. Like, I rem- I was at the Orlando Mania shows, and I was most excited about seeing Hulk and Shingo Takagi as a tag team versus Cien Erico than anything else on that show. And it's just, like, one of the more sad things about Dragon Gate is you cannot escape time and the embodiment of this is BB Hulk because BB Hulk at this time was one of the more like outstanding high flyers, which if you look at Hulk now, you're like, how did this guy fly around? But in 2009, he was able to do that with ease. And Yamato is interesting because as you mentioned, right? Like the grappling is so much more different than what it is now. This is still Yamato still fresh off out of doing Pancrase. He does not have much of a personality other than being a scumball. He gets his personality in Mad Blanky, but this really was like the match that brought things in. Dave Meltzer said that I have his review up. He gave us four and a quarter stars. That's about where I have it. But he said noticeably, this match was awesome. But the negative part is that on 98% of wrestling shows, this would have killed the crowd for the rest of the night because who is going to be able to f- to follow a four and a quarter opening match? He says that in 2009, not knowing what the future would bring. And this is another example, Gabe Sapolsky being at least five years ahead of the time. Absolutely. Say, say what you will about Gabe. And, you know, you've had a complicated relationship with Gabe, <laughs> uh, to say the least. I am someone who I really, I, I really respect Gabe. And up until about 18 months ago was sort of an active defender of Gabe Sapolsky because I really thought he took too much shit from multiple people. Um, I, understand his online presence takes its toll on people and that Gabe would be much better off if he just logged off more often than not. Uh, It wasn't until that Evolve went full into being a WWE partner and the way Gabe just treated people after that, that really turned me off and upset me because I understand why he did it, and I don't knock the business move of it, but I was one of the people paying for every Evolve show and paying for whatever new service Gabe had out there and paying attention to what he did. And 
I understand why that maybe wasn't paying the bills and that I was one of the people few and far between that were doing that. But the way Gabe treated those people when he went full on into WWE really upset me. But even now, and I, I only, you know, watch from afar as to what he does with Evolve and his work in NXT and NXT UK. But in terms of especially the American wrestling landscape, I mean, few people have really been more influential than Gabe Sapolsky. He understands this business to an extreme degree. And, uh, you know, Mike and I are two people that care about Dragon Gate and the way it's perceived in America and the, and the way people, Western fans are watching. And Gabe has always erred on the side of being pro Dragon Gate and being ahead of the curve on a lot of things. And that is something that, stuck out to me watching this entire show is there's a, a handful of things on this show that are good ideas in theory that are either too ahead of their time or Gabe did not have uh, all of the means necessary to do the vision that he wanted to accomplish, but he was at least going for it. And that is what I love about, especially this first year of Dragon Gate USA is not everything lands, not everything is perfect, but Gabe is really going for it. And it's a shame as the promotion continued along that you could see his interest waver and his effort levels decrease at times because when Gabe is fully committed to an idea, whether it's for me or not is irrelevant. The fact is when Gabe is committed to an idea fully, it's something worth at least taking note of if you care about the direction of American wrestling. And Dragon Gate USA is the perfect example of that. Talking about something where he tries something and does not hit, I watched this match today. I don't know if you watched this one when you did your rewatch. Ken Doan versus Two Cold Scorpio. Did you watch? Oh, oh I watched the whole show. Okay. Yeah, other than the fray, I watched everything. Yeah, I, go go ahead. Speak speak your piece, <laughs> and I will fill in the gaps. All right. So this was at a time where Ken Doan recently left WWE. He was like 23 years old, and at the time, he was seen as like the can't miss prospect in drag. And WWE was Ken Doan and. He definitely Gabe definitely thought that Kendone had something that he obviously didn't, as him and Two Cold Scorpio had one of the more boring and one of the more like bad wrestling era matches. Sixteen minutes and thirty eight seconds. Uh, Two Cold Scorpio won with a moonsault, a double stomp that landed precisely on Kendone's head. Uh, this match was terrible. Uh, Scorpio's uh, tights kept on falling down, and the crowd started chanting because this was a very the crowd at this show versus how Evolve crowds have been was up for everything. They knew everyone from Dragon Gate. Like this was a very spirited crowd, but this match completely. It, it, it Dave Meltzer said he was worried about how you follow up a four and a quarter star match. You put a piece of shit like this out there. Yeah. I don't understand why this match exists. And I understand that it's the ECW arena and it's too cold Scorpio. And if you're going to engage an audience past the message board community, uh, too cold in Philadelphia is probably not a bad idea. Ken Doan, God, it's weird to think he was only 23 when he was let go. I mean, yeah. you know, it's it's just mind blowing because I mean, you're right. He was like the guy that just it was so it was very uh, much. Ken Doan is a good example of just the Johnny Ace era as a whole of they sign a guy probably when he's too young, uh, they don't give him enough chances and then they get mad that he doesn't meet his potential and they let him go. Uh, right. It's crazy to think that he was 23 when this match happened, but this match did not need to happen. It was so painfully slow. 
Ken Doan was just awkward, and it's it's not his fault because he comes from the WWE system, and as we've seen, uh, even with guys like Drew Galloway or, to an extent, even Chris Hero after he was let go, there's always a bit of a an adjustment period of stepping away from the WWE house style and finding something that works in the independent landscape. And Doan had a shot here and he had it on the first two Evolve shows to impress Gabe. And he obviously didn't because he was never brought back. But yeah, this match did not work. It was 16 minutes, which I could not believe because this is, again, it's a show that I've seen multiple times. It's a match that this, you know, once I saw it the first time, I would skip over because there's no reason to watch it. But I decided to go back and and give it a second viewing here. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It never ends. But it's, you know, it's almost worth it because the finish of this match, oh God. the two cold Scorpio moonsault to the face and when it's not even a moonsault to the face it is a moonsault diving double foot stomp to the face i mean it looks like something that if loki saw this wrestling would need to cease to exist because loki would be trying to do this to everybody and loki would nail it because he's still incredible but it is a shoot flipping double foot stomp to the face of Ken Doan. It is so violent and so unexpected given the way that the rest of this match went that when he hit that, I jumped off my couch because I did not remember that. And I could not believe that it landed the way that it did. That was a brutal finish to what was otherwise a brutal for other reasons match. Right. Yeah. Like this is people talk about Dragon Gate having too many dies. This was the most dangerous thing on the show. By far, was this double stomp. But yeah, and bringing two cold Scorpio was something that Gabe would do a lot over the first few years of Dragon Gate USA, especially when they were in Philadelphia. Was He definitely tried to get ECW guys on the card in a way that completely distracted from the rest of the show. We will talk about it later in the next few episodes as soon as we get introduced to the, to the DUF, the Dirty Ugly Fucks, because that became a big thing. But this definitely was one of the things that did not work. Uh, after that, we had a nice little cut backstage where Lenny Leonard, the commentators, by the way, for this are Lenny Leonard and uh, Leonard F. Chakarason, who was only referred to as Chakarason because they didn't want to have two Lennies on the show. They uh, did this backstage kind of video where both uh, Doi and Shingo were prepping before the main event, which was like a quick one minute interlude that I thought was kind of a nice thing to have. Yeah, so this is what I was referring to earlier when I said that Sapolsky was certainly trying things here that he may not have been able to fully execute to the greatest extent because I love the idea of this segment. And I Mm -hmm. think this is something that, whether it be independence or mainstream wrestling on any level, could benefit from uh, the air quotes real sports production of what was attempted on this Dragon Gate USA show and just going into the locker room with that narration and then the translated promos, it was done poorly just because Gabe Sapolsky has never really had a grasp on production values. And, you know, Mike and I and Rich Krejci of Voices of Wrestling have certainly made fun of Gabe Gabe both publicly and privately about his production values in the past, but this is at least him trying something that... I think 
even just the way technology has evolved, I think 10 years later, this segment comes across much better than it did on the DVD. This felt very dated, but I look at it more of just the way it was produced than the overall content of the the promo package, because I really enjoyed this attempt at something. It just it, it failed. But I look at that more as just, well, it was, you know, 2009 and I'm looking at things from a 2020 lens. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it. Uh, the next match was we talked about the touring Chikara eight man tag. We had that here with uh, the face team of Mike Quackenbush, Jigsaw, Fire Ant, and Soldier Ant going against the Rudo team of Icarus and Granakuma of Fist, Amasis of the Assyrian Portal, and the late edition because of an injury. It was supposed to be a fitting of the uh, of the Syrian Portal, but instead we got Hollow Wicked. This match went 17 minutes and 25 seconds, and Jigsaw got the win with the Gigantonic Amori driver. This is a very interesting match on this show because if any match was helped really from the crowd, it was this Jakara match because Jakara just a few months earlier at a show I was at had the 2009 King of Trios in this very building. So this was very much like the hometown match, but it was a hometown match that this was pretty much the best version of this touring Jakara match that you have seen constantly over the four years previous from this, like as we we're talking about on the smaller indies. Yeah, this match more so than any other feels very 2009. Right. And that's not a comment on the in-ring style per se, but just like, wow, this is like a red hot crowd responding to Chikara and loving it. And that just felt very dated for some reason, because, you know, we're so far past that in the modern independent landscape. And it's a shame because, you know, my mileage really varies on Mike Quackenbush. I don't really like him as a wrestler, and I certainly don't like him as the businessman. But when you throw him in an eight-man tag match like this, and when he's with Jigsaw and then the Colony in particular, uh, Quack becomes much more tolerable in my opinion because he's not the focus of this match. It's not all about him and his tendencies – of what I consider to be cosplaying Lucha, and I don't really like good Lucha, let alone bad Americanized Lucha. Uh, I I don't love that, but I I respect it in a match like this when you have Jigsaw and Hollow Wicked and the Colony and Gran Akuma just flying around and doing their damnedest to entertain the crowd, which they did in this match. Uh, I I you know I've gone back and I've watched a lot of Chikara. But I don't think I've watched enough to firmly say whether this was the house style or not, or if this match in particular being on a Dragon Gate show uh, influenced the way that this match built. But this match felt like a Dragon Gate match in the sense that there were big spots early, it settled down in the middle, and then the final two minutes of this match, that finishing stretch, built and built and built, and it was so intense and so big by the end of it that whatever lull there was in the middle was completely rendered useless because the end of this match was just so exciting. Yeah, uh, as someone who did watch Chikara, this is the touring match. This isn't necessarily what was on the day in and day out. Maybe this was like the main event Chikara match, really on like shows that didn't have like title matches and they just had like a big four or or five way tag or something like this or like a ten man tag or eight man tag. So like this is what kind of what it felt like here. This does have Quack at his least masturbatory, which is usually the best quack is when he decides to stop pretending that he's Negro Navarro 
So, <laughs> so there's that. And then like the, the the people that really like stuck out for me as someone who used to love Chikara, pretty much gave it up after the uh, after the shutdown was Jigsaw was someone at this time that was so good in 2009, and I saw him recently, and he's still so good. They're just like, oh my god, this. How does he not have a contract somewhere? Right in today's day and age. It is – wrestling companies are throwing contracts at people that are far less talented than Jigsaw. I liked him uh, in the Chikara stuff that I've seen. I liked him in Jangate USA. I liked him as Rubik's in TNA. How does this man not have a contract anywhere? It is totally absurd to me. Yeah, yeah, it's insane. Uh, the big thing, uh, unless you had any other thoughts on the match, is what happened post-match. Uh, the only other note I have that also relates to Jigsaw is I found it very funny that at one point the fist duo of Akuma and Icarus were ripping at Jigsaw's mask and trying right. to mask him. And that's only <laughs> funny because a year earlier he was wrestling without a mask in Philadelphia on Ring of Honor shows. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, I totally understand what they're going for here. That is the wrong guy to go after, though, because he was publicly wrestling without a mask for months right yeah yeah he's he's a guy who definitely ended up doing much better when he put the mask back on but, yeah well no once the mask came off we saw why he wore a mask in the first place and then <laughs> luckily it, it continued after that right right so the post match is one of the big setup points for future Dragon gate usa shows quack grabs the microphone and talks about the relationship that we've touched on earlier between dragon gate and chikara through jorge skyda rivera he challenged Dragon Gate to have some sort of a sibling rivalry where they would bring his best guys and Dragon Gate would bring theirs and they would settle it. Yamato came out and basically completely big leagued him, kicked him in the balls, and then all the Chikara guys were trying to hit the ring to try to pull Yamato off him. The big one that came out, though, was Granakuma, who turned on what was called the Chikara Seki Gun to uh, form what would later become, this was like the big formation of Kamikaze USA. Yeah, it's uh, an angle that certainly plays into basically the next year of shows, and uh, I, I was okay with this. Uh, it certainly accomplished its goal, and it was certainly not the most awkward promo on the show. Oh, yeah. No, it was not the most awkward promo on the show that would come in the next match. And, yeah, it was real interesting. Like, Granakuma definitely was a guy, and Chikara, who was always a tag guy, not necessarily a singles competitor, but having him immediately being drawn into the Dragon Gate system kind of was like a foreshadow of how things would be, especially through 2010 and 2011 with Dragon Gate USA. Yeah, Kuma worked his ass off in the eight-man tag, and it made sense that, you know, from that, obviously this was, you know, determined ahead of time, but just watching the match, you go, well, Kuma's probably the best guy on that heel side, and then sure enough, he plays into the uh, ensuing angle. Yep. So the next match was a singles match between Masato Yoshino and Dragon Kid. Shortest match on the show, 13 minutes and 26 seconds. Dragon Kid got the pen with the Ultra Rana. And this was right at one of the big peaks of the Dragon Kid and Masato Yoshino feud. And, you know, this was a full-on sprint. And I thought that this was really, like, the only big physical change, I'd say, is that Yoshino does not uh, count as many carbs as he once used to. <laughs> yeah, uh, Dragon Kid and Masato Yoshino have had 15 singles matches in their history. Uh, they had one here that would continue uh, for quite some time in Dragon Gate USA. They wrestled each other 
on the first Drangate UK show. Uh, they wrestled a number of times before this match and a number of times after this match in singles capacity. I'm not sure if they've ever had a truly great singles match. When I think about the lineage of Yoshino versus Dragon Kid matches, uh, this is not at the top of the list. There are a few that I like more than this, most notably uh, the Gate of Destiny 2008 match, which I believe was somewhat of a viral Puro match at the time. I, I know that's one that is still even as we enter a world where Puro links are kind of dried up and, and most things are put behind a paywall now, I still see that Yoshino versus Dragon Kid match pop up from time to time. And then their Dead or Alive 2013 match in Dragon Kid's hometown. Those are both very strong matches. This was fine. I actually liked this one more than I remembered, mainly because uh, Dragon Kid was excellent here and it's one thing that just every once in a while drank kid will sneak up on me and i'll see a performance of his and i think shit he is one of the best flyers to ever do it and specifically he's building to his big moves in such a way in this match and particularly he does a top rope hurricanrana towards the end of this match that gets a giant standing ovation from the ecw arena the move looked great the reaction that ensued was tremendous it was just great to see but was this a great match? I, I don't know. It certainly wasn't bad. I mean, I'm anywhere yeah. between three and a half and three and three quarters on it. That's on the cusp of greatness. But the way these two were featured and the way this feud was promoted, I don't think they ever just hit the highs that they were hoping for. Yeah, it, it's something where I think Yoshino is a good enough base. But for someone like Dragon Kid who, you know, he, at this point, he's... 10-year pro he's been around he's been dinged up a little bit as we've seen like in his next decade the best dragon kid matches come out when he has a the strongest base as possible and i think that that was the issue here was that you can't really do all the incredible high flying as much when you have someone who is basically your same size basing for you regardless of how good he is the one thing that i did really like about this going to the final stretch was they had a moment where Yoshino was about to put him away with the Soul Naciente, but Dragon Kid sat down on it. And so it looked like that basically he was sitting down, like just normal, but he had Yoshino's uh, legs wrapped around his neck and he was able to roll to get Yoshino's shoulders down for a pin attempt. And that was like a really inventive way out of the Soul Naciente, which over the last like decade, basically you lock it in, you either power out, power bomb, or you tap out. So I thought that was kind of cool. I completely understand why this match was booked because it, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I was thinking just a second ago, I was like, well, you know, it might've been interesting if they had opened the show with this, given that it's the two fastest guys in the promotion It's probably the two most eye catching guys that you can understand sort of the style of Dragon Gate more from watching these two wrestle than anybody else, even, you know, a Shingo Takagi or a Shima included. And then I remembered they wrestle in the opener on the next show. And I actually think that is a much better match than this one. Mm -hmm. um, it's a match that exists. It's a good match, but I, you know, like you said, Dragon Kid does his best work when he's in the ring with a guy bigger and stronger than him that he can almost use as a jungle gym of sorts. Uh, and Masato Yoshino is just not that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, after that came the most awkward promo on the uh, show when Scorpio, Too Cold Scorpio came out, kind of just said, I want to see another match between you two. You remind me of Eddie and uh, Dean Malenko. And it just was like a very abrupt thing of Gabe trying something that didn't work. 
Yeah, it's a good idea in theory, and it was very, very poorly executed. And I'm not sure who to put the blame on there. It's probably irrelevant 12 years after the fact, but it was an excruciatingly awkward promo. Yeah, the the next match is actually what I thought was the best match on the show, was the Young Bucks versus the Warriors 5 team of Shima and Susumi Okoska, and the Young Bucks won with more bang for the buck. This was, I thought, the best match on the show by a good... Not by a significant margin, but it was a step above everything else. I thought that if we're talking about like how things are in 2009 to 2020, Shima is the loser of who has aged the most. I think that's fair to say. Like He definitely is the person that between then and now, you can see the most visible difference between the two of them. And Susumu still had like his crazy shorts on that I thought were great. But yeah, this was kind of like, if you want to look like, it, like one of the big formulative Young Bucks matches, this was that, and this was with guys that knew their stuff and knew how to highlight them at this time before they became known as like the best tag team in the world. This was a match that kind of set them on the way because they're with people that, you know, Young Bucks spent a lot of tours between 2007, 2008, 2009 in Dragon Gate. Like they were assistants for for World 1. They did some stuff with Warriors. Like they were a significant presence on these shows and it kind of, the familiarity really came off in this match. Not just the best tag team in the world, Mike, but the best tag team of all time. That is my firm stance on the Young Bucks. I talked about this match at length with our friend Aaron Bentley behind the Everything Elite Patreon paywall at the end of January. We did two hours of me waxing poetically on my favorite Young Bucks matches and moments. And this match, all these years later, remains one of my absolute favorite Young Bucks matches of all time. I think the world of this match, partially because of the work that Shima and Yokos could do in this match, because they are excellent. And this is a really good setting for Shima. You can tell he's thriving in this environment. Red Hot American crowd, they're excited to see him. Susumu can do most of the work, and Shima can come in and hit his big moves. It's a formula that works and that I would love to see more of in the Strong Hearts incarnation that we are dealing with in 2020. But the Young Bucks in this match, they are so young and so talented and are doing so much. That's the other thing. Yeah. There are just so many moves in this match, but it's not overwhelming. They just come one after another, one after another, and they kind of just fall into each other. It's really, it's just masterful, modern, professional wrestling. It is, to me, the turning point of the Young Bucks becoming what I think are the greatest tag team of all time. This is the match that starts a run that leads them to TNA, that leads them to PWG. And, and you know, they were already working PWG at the time, obviously, but becoming gods in Reseda, California. And then they work their way back into Ring of Honor and then into New Japan. And then we see where they are now. To me, this is the match more so than any other of their early time period that really gets the ball rolling. If you have not seen this match, to me, this is essential viewing. It is the best match on the show. I gave it four and a half. I flirted with four and three quarters, honestly, because I just love the way this match is laid out. I love the way it's executed. It is essential viewing if you have not seen it. Yeah, and here is a note on the time frame of this match. So this show was taped on July 25th. Nick Jackson did not turn 20 until three days later. 
He that was is, ha- that is totally insane. He was having this match at age 19. I wish I could be as I was talented at, at anything to like three levels exponentially worse than Nick Jackson in this match. Like it's just absolutely insane. This also this was the match that I noted something that I, I, I sent you a DM just to pop you on this, but how everyone was like about the Poison Rana and the reverse Hurricane Rana, that's how everyone was for the Casadora into the Stone Cold Sunner on this show. Like Every match, basically, other than the uh, two Cold Scorpio match in the main event, had at least two of them. So. Yeah, that it was a great observation by Mike of just the way that the Poison <laughs> Rana has been kind of ruined by modern independent wrestling. So many uh, of those modified stunners in, on the show, great looking move, but one that has completely been lost to time at this point. I see no one no doing one does it anymore, it at all. which is insane because there are so many of them on this show. Yeah, and this is just like... For for a lot of ways, this was the Young Bucks' first big match on the U.S. landscape. Like, they were in PWG before this, but they weren't really a factor in PWG. But this was on pay-per-view. This is before they would leave uh, the Dragon Gate kind of auspices, do Ring of Honor TNA, and then come back. We'll, we'll get back into how they left Dragon Gate USA the second time, because that's a really funny story. But this is just remarkable. And, like, Susumu at this time, like, if no one has changed at the course of time, no one has changed as less than Susumi Koska because him and Shima, like he was throwing Jobo no Kachis. They were doing a bunch of Aiden, Aiden Mugens, which was really kind of neat. And it just was a special match. If you only have time for one match, find your way to get Young Bucks versus Shima and Susumi Koska because that, that match will value your time. You'll come away thinking, holy shit, this is what they were doing almost 11 years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's... It's just a moder- a marvelous display of what these two teams were capable of. And you're right in the sense that it was really the first big Young Bucks match. I mean, they had debuted in Ring of Honor a month prior, and they were wrestling Steen and El Generico in their first match. But that was on a Ring of Honor house show. They had flirted with some HG Net stuff probably around this time. But, you know, like we've said, this show was a really big deal. And not only was this a a big match in the the grand scheme of things for the Young Bucks career, but they left this match looking like the tag team of the future. And the promo that Shima cuts after basically says that. And the Young Bucks say, well, we're not the tag team of the future. We're the tag team of now, which, you know, it's a cheesy line, but it's an effective line. And from there, you know, they kind of begin this decade of dominance that, you know, has now led them to all elite wrestling. And it's just a great thing to see. But yeah, this is when you, when people have asked me for young bucks recommendations of, you know, how did they become the team that they are now? This is the match that I point them to. This is the apex. This is the start of the modern young bucks formula. And it's great to say. Yeah. Yeah. And it's match of the night. I think we could both, we both agree on that. And you, you know, this become like their decade dominance and this is kind of, the fully formed young bucks that came out of working in the Dragon Gate Dojo for those tours that they hated and having those matches against like no ring against Masaki Mochizuki and Don Fuji, which was another match you talked about with AB. But this is a remarkable match and definitely something worth going out of your way to see. And that leaves us just with the main event. It was the it was a singles match with the Open the Dreamgate champion Naruki Doi defeating Shingo Takagi in 20 minutes in a non-title matchup. And this is back, this is before the uh, head shaving after the uh, monkey incident. So Shingo still had his full, 
full luxurious mullet. Uh, this was Naoki Tanizaki, still bleach blonde before he got went into having silver hair for title matches or big matches. He did bring over both the V1 Dreamgate title and an incredible jacket. This was the start of him just spending all of his money on ring jackets. But this match was really kind of interesting, especially considering the time frame and where Naruki Doi was as a wrestler at this time. I feel like that's the big kind of thing that I took away from this match. It's crazy to think that these are two guys that have... Up until Shingo left the promotion in 2018, they were existing in the same promotion and pretty much exclusively as opponents because I don't think they've ever been in the same unit as one another, but they've only had four singles matches. This was the second of their four. They had one after this in 2011 that I don't think I've seen, and then one in 2017 that I know I've seen, but I don't remember. Uh, their first singles match came... Uh, eight months prior at the Final Gate 2008 show where Doi defeated Shingo to become the Open the Dream Gate champion. That is a very good match. This one I put in the same category, much like uh, Yamato versus BB Hulk. I actually like this a little bit more this time around than I used to. Yeah, same the here. Issue, the issue is that it's a little too long and it's a little too slow. It feels like the Dreamgate matches that are plagued by slow grappling in the beginning, even if the title is not on the line. That is what this match is. Um, that being said, Shingo especially looks really good in this match. He just throws Doi around with such ease. He's marketed and presented and performs as a big star to the American audience. And Rookie Doi kind of gets eaten alive at portions of this match. I mean, Doi's good. He holds his own, but there are times where Shingo just doubles him in terms of star power and output in this match. And then at the very end, Shingo eats the muscular bomb for the win, or I guess for the loss, rather, Doi picks up the win. I'm hovering around four stars with this. It's a it's a very, very good match, but your mileage is going to vary on just how much of the opening portions of this match you can, you know, uh, digest before you start to get annoyed and just want action. You see... I went four and a quarter on this. Maybe, really? Maybe it's because how negatively I look at that Dreamgate run, where if you thought this was slow, the 9 Doi title matches were a lot slower than this. Like other than yeah, they the, were brutal. Yeah, other than the Kochi Kanemoto match. So maybe at that time I'm giving him a handicap into four and a quarter. I the th- the thing that really strikes me about this match is how much they've evolved since then. Uh, it is that they were in the same unit though for well over a year they both were members of berserk ah yes okay you got me there yeah yeah like that's the big one that they were a part of together but they were mostly apart basically yeah pretty much from all of their career until then doi gets kicked out of berserk and that was it for them but yeah only four matches they the chemistry really was that if they had a shingo match i felt like it was a better match like it, it the matches mattered on how much shingo was in control of it here it's interesting how much Doi used to fly around. Like, he did, like, the segment that he would get, uh, they were fighting on trying to do a suplex to the outside. Uh, Shingo lands on the apron. Doi immediately gets him keeled over. He runs off the ropes, hits him with, like, an elbow smash, runs off the ropes, does a brutal-looking uh, missile drop kick, and then he goes up top for his somersault senton when the guy is laid up in the ropes. And I was like, man... I remember when Doi used to do this all the time, and it was always looked so cool because he's not a small guy doing this. And 
And I thought that was kind of remarkable with that. And then it just was a very much like for the North American audiences, I would say, Naruki Doi was always involved in the Dragon Gate stuff in Ring of Honor. He was never the featured star. It always was Shingo or Shima or Dragon Kid. So putting Naruki Doi there and having him come out as the champion, put down Shingo, I guess was a way to establish Naruki Doi and the Dreamgate champion as, okay, we are later going to figure out our own Dragon Gate USA champion, but the Dreamgate champion is the top guy. And that's why I kind of came out of this match thinking. Yeah, it's funny just looking at this from the land, the context of the modern Dragon Gate landscape where Naruki Doi is once again open the Dreamgate champion. He's on his second reign now. And... Uh, you know, there was that time where Masato Yoshino would have singles matches, and, and this show was one of them, whereas, like, on paper, this works, but, you know, they're never really as good as you want them to be, and there was always kind of this doubt of whether or not they would fully land, and then a few years ago, I think probably 2014 is when Yoshino embraced his older age and modified his ring style just a little bit and then became this, you know, knockout singles worker. And weirdly, I think we're starting to see that now with Naruki Doi, where he has finally put it all together. And as a tag worker, Naruki Doi is one of the best of all time. As a singles wrestler, Doi really has struggled to just nail those high-end singles matches and I think if this match happened today in the same context, it would be a much better match, not because of anything different that Shingo's doing, but because of the way that Doi has evolved as a worker. Yeah, no, like this definitely is something that really puts in mind how much Doi has become and stepped up in this title reign, you know? Because this, for, for Doi, this would have been easily one of the top half matches he would have during this title reign, this first Dreamgate title reign. But the second one, this is worse than all of his title matches and worse than the Benkei match, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And this still was a very, very good match. And it's just interesting, like, being able to watch this back now with 11 years of hindsight. Seeing, like, okay, now most of the people on this card are out, out of Dragon Gate. Shima and Young Bucks are doing their own thing and are affiliated together. But you still have Naruki Doi on top. You still have Susumu as, like, the stalwart. You have Masao Yoshino winding down his career. Dragon Kid hasn't really changed in 11 years, which I find kind of remarkable. And then Yamato has taken his next step. He he changed his character when he turned fully heel and mad blanky. And then BB Hulk sadly is not really BB Hulk anymore. He is now full on uh, Darkness Hulk from now on. So I think that's a very interesting way to kind of think about the show in my mind. Overall, it's a great show. It's, yeah. If you know, there's always talk on Twitter about, you know, the independent wrestling hall of fame. And if that were to be a thing, who are your first ballot guys? And, you know, your Smojo, low key CM Punk, Brian Danielson, and then that fifth spot is always kind of up in the open. If we're talking about the independent wrestling hall of fame in terms of the must see shows of the independent landscape, it certainly feels like maybe a ring of honor, uh, the first super card of honor, IWA Mid-South were no joke that took place, you know, uh, right, you know, uh, a few hours away from that with Hero versus Milano and Loki versus Necro Butcher. There are probably some CZW shows that I'm forgetting in there. But if we're talking about the pantheon of important, historical and great independent wrestling shows, Open the Historic Gate needs to be on that list and it needs to be towards the top. 
Yeah, and when you like look at the context, this was the show that won 2009 a Wrestling Observer Wrestle or Wrestling Show of the Year. Did not win Match of the Year, but this kind of like started a period where I would say that, that if you really want to point something as like the big precursor to the independent boom, this show you could probably point to more so than anything else. If you take ROH out of the picture, is kind of the uh, crystallization of it in a, in a lot of ways and. You know, this this kind of started what would end up being a very hot 2009 and into 2010 for Dragon Gate USA. Absolutely. Uh, the show after this, which we'll discuss on our next episode, uh, Dragon Gate USA hits Chicago, Illinois. Uh, we see a lot of familiar faces and some new debuting faces on that show. There's a bit more of an American influence on that card uh, but yeah, this is the first year of Dragon Gate USA in particular is a very special time. Uh, we see the influence of the way the card was laid out of the way the matches was worked and of the in-ring style. We still see that influence to this day. And it all starts on July 25th, 2009, open the historic gate. Now, do we want to give a preview of what that card is before we go? Or should we just leave it on that note? Let's leave it on that note. Okay. But I think that's going to do it for this first episode of our Rewind. We'll come back soon with the Open the Untouchable Gate from the Congress Theater, which I don't think – does the Congress Theater still exist in Chicago? It does not exist. I have never uh, attended the Congress Theater. By the time I moved to Chicago, it was all but gone. All right, so another big moment 11 years ago, different time in pro wrestling. But, yeah, this was an absolute blast, and we will be coming back with you with this. Don't really have a set schedule. Probably – once a month, I think it's fair to say, where we're going to watch through the history of Dragon Gate USA in case this was an absolute blast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, until next time, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore in your case. You can follow the podcast account at open voice gate on Twitter. Yep. And I am at F- Fuji. Hey, of two eyes like Don Fuji, but that's going to do it for this edition of the Dragon Gate of open the voice gate of uh, rewind. We watch series. We got to think of a better name than that. <laughs> we'll work on it. We'll, we'll work on it. All right. Take care, everyone. This is the story of the one as head of maintenance at a concert hall. He knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working. The HVAC is humming and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.